best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this month's installment of Beer with Blue Marble Space. I'm Jacob Huckmisfer, a research scientist with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. If you'd like to learn more about our institute, you can check us out online at www.bmsis.org. And you can listen to previous editions of our podcast, bmsis.org slash podcast. Uh, we've got a, a great show for you today. We have uh, our friend Armando, who's also a research scientist with us from Santiago, Chile. But first, to kick things off, uh, Michael Bush is going to tell us, I believe, about one of his favorite teas he's encountered recently. So, Michael, please. All right. I continue my plot to try to seduce you all away from drinking beer. I was in China last September, six weeks ago now, and I took the opportunity to stock up. So there's a section in the north part of Fujian called the Wei Mountains, which grows a wide selection of oolong teas. It includes actually the most expensive tea in the world, which I did not buy because it costs about $1,000 per cup. Instead, I went with something that's not driven by conspicuous consumption. So what we have here is a fairly weakly oxidized oolong tea, but it still benefits pretty well from repeated steepings. And very little bitterness, and you can't really smell it over the video, of course, but it has a fairly fruity aroma. So again, these are all teas from the Wuyi Mountains, but stay away from the stuff that costs $1 million per kilogram. So our speaker today is Armando Azua Bustos, based at the Universidad de los Andes in Santiago, Chile. So Armando, if I'm calling this correctly, you did your undergrad in agronomy and then spent some time making wine, so perhaps you should be introducing beverages next time. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Then master's in biochemistry, PhD also microbiology. Been do introduced to astrobiology, working with Chris McKay, who's of course down the road from me here in Mountain View. And you grew up in the Atacama Desert, yes? Mm -hmm. Or at least on the peripheries of it. I can't imagine anybody lives in the place that you are posting there. Actually, I lived there for a year. I will tell you about it later. Oh, okay. And, of course, Armando's been focusing particularly on the unique microbiology that we get in the driest parts of the world, which I guess we'll be talking some about today. Take it away. I was born in the Takama Desert, amazingly, in the, in the so-called hyper-arid areas, which are the driest part of the Atacama. My father, who is an engineer, a mechanical engineer, came there when he was young uh, to this mining operations, which is just in the middle of the Central Valley. And that's where I was born. We, uh, I, I, I lived there for about a year, and then we moved to another location, the Atacama, which is about a, an hour and a half drive from there. And it's, you, you can still feel the desert, but, uh, but it's not as dry as there. It's, it's super dry, but not hyper-arid as uh, the picture you are, you are seeing there. So basically, I lived for almost 20 years in, in the Atacama, and, and then I, I, I wouldn't even dream about you know, doing anything in this place. Uh, uh, although I had a lot of fun there, uh, my father used to take us every weekend since in uh, to 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 wander around since in those times we they all we, we have only as an entertainment uh, the tv which only featured two channels and both were 
kind of lousy so <laughs> you have to kind of be creative in order to to you know to to kill time but that uh, kind of gave me the feel of the desert because we were, we, we would be going like for you know watching the star with our telescope or finding fossils or to, uh, following the ancient Inca trails or and, and so on and so on so that's that's how I got acquainted with the desert and which has been very helpful for me uh, for me now Incredibly, uh, well, in Chukicamata, which is the place where I used to live for the most of the time, almost 18 years, as it was a, a small, so a mining operation, in this case, uh, copper, uh, there wasn't much to follow your studies there. And so everyone uh, had to go away in order to, you know, to go into the university. So when I had to take the decision of what to study, uh, I always liked the biological science. But in that time, uh, to study biology in Chile uh, wasn't a very good idea because you would have a hard time trying to find a job. And so biology was not that option. Then the second option was biochemistry. <laughs> but I, I remember well this professor that told me that if I went to biochemistry, I would end in a hospital, you know, analyzing people's body fluids. So <laughs> that, that also wasn't much of an option for me. So the next thing related to, to biological sciences was uh, agronomy, you know, range sciences. And that time seemed to be a, a, a good choice because you would make a good living of it. The wine industry in, 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 in this case was uh, growing very fast. So that was one of the options, being an agronomist and with a specialization that was in winemaking. So that, that's what I, how I started. So I, 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 got, I got to work in a few winemakers. Uh, maybe you have heard about this famous brand Conchitoro, which is everyone, everywhere in, in the world. And I used to work, in, for example, in that winery. But uh, after working a year or so, I kind of realized it wasn't too exciting for me. I mean, it's too, it's really exciting for a lot of people, but for, for me, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't a, a, a really a, an intellectual challenge. I, I, I kind of figured out that I would be making wines, about the same wines in two years, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 more years. So I decided then to study again. And that's when I got uh, first uh, master's degree in biochemistry. And for some time, I work in the biotechnological industry, plant biotechnology in, in this case. Uh, you know, developing a new varieties, for example, of lemons and oranges without seeds, or developing new rootstocks for grapevines that, you know, were more tolerant to salinity, for example, that, that kind of stuff. And then after finishing that, I got to know Chris McKay, which was usually you know, regularly coming to the Atacama. Um, on that time, I, you know, I was good with this technique called the uh, fluorescent in situ hybridization, which allows you to track uh, very little amounts of bacteria in the environment, among others. And I proposed that, you, that we could do that on, on his study fields. And that's how the relation started for me with astrobiology. And from that, then I had the, the opportunity to get into a PhD program in a very unusual way. Because I had this interest already with, with Chris, I approached the Dean of the Faculty of Biological Science of the Catholic University, and I asked him, him if I could uh, use the electron microscope that the faculty had, but without no cost, because it was something like a hobby for me. I didn't have any funds for that. And, and, say, say, and he said, yeah, no, no problem. And when he asked me oh, what my, my intention with those microscopes, 
I talked with him about my interest in this case and he told me that well you know I have been a researcher in this field for almost 40 years and you know getting a new paper on this doesn't me excite me anymore but what you are doing uh, is very exciting uh, this has been uh, like a second interesting for me so I'm going to put my lab for your entire disposition in order to you to use it and when I will change my interest for astrobiology and that's kind of very unusual you know you, you don't hear that you approach a very famous guy and you know and that guy say okay I'm gonna <laughs> change my entire research field with all my resources with all my contact in other words uh, students coming here and proposing and since I was going to work on that uh, it makes sense for him and to me the pursue a PhD in the way it would be killing as we say here in Chile two bears with the same done and from then on uh, it's amazing how fast we progress but because since then we have published uh, certain uh, easy articles two book chapters and one book you know maybe reflecting my passion on, on this field and what I'm trying to be good at is trying to understand how life in the Atacama can survive at all. You can you, you see this wonderful, amazing picture where it seems that nothing grows. But my latest studies say that humidity, relative humidity every day drops to zero. I mean, zero percent relative humidity every day, about this time of the day, actually. But if you go one meter down in the soil, you find life. What's relative humidity there is about 10%. 12%, 14%, and even with that very low relative humidity values, you can find 20 to 30 different bacterial species. Why is that interesting from the point of astrobiology? Because uh, people think that life may be located in the subsoil on Mars, and the relative humidity we are measuring on that point is exactly the same. The relative humidity that the Mars Science Laboratory is measuring now on Mars. So you, you have basically the same water availability in one place on Earth here, constant in time. It's the same thing. It, it, it ranges from 13 to 15. It's very low, very constant on time, very low. And even there, you can find life. So it makes you wonder if that life can survive here, why it couldn't survive about the same environmental condition in the case of Mars. And this is not the only work uh, we are undertaking, where we have been describing other very interesting um, places in the Atacama where you can find life. And it's amazing that whenever you have even uh, the smallest amount of water, you find some life from there colonizing. We haven't been able to find a place which is so dry that nothing lives on it. It's, it's, it, is, it is amazing. It makes you wonder how dry a place must be in order to don't, do not support anything. So that basically resumes my, my work in the Atacama and my, my research interest. Of course, this has allowed me to know a lot of the, of the, of the astro, astrobiological community because the Atacama Desert is a well-recognized Mars analog. So, so it, it gives me a lot in order to, to talk with, uh, with many other people in the world from the point of biochemistry, from the point of microbiology, from the point of even, even, even astrophysics. For example, I have a collaboration with a team of astrophysicists from Brazil. And so some of the, um, the, the strains I have isolated from the Atacama, uh, I have been, been able to analyze them with the synchrotrons, you know, the particle accelerators that are available in Brazil in order to, for example, to understand UV tolerance, among others. Uh, I have another collaboration, for example, with a physicist of, uh, of the ESO, the European Southern Observatory, where he used one of my strains in order to prove that he could detect chirality using those bacteria uh, in order to prove that the 
a, a proof of concept on how on how to try to match on chirality, for example, in a, as a biosignature in more distant exoplanets uh, and things like that. So that that's the kind of stuff I, I'm usually doing. Uh, at this point, I'm open to questions. Yeah, well, thanks, Armando. Uh, let's uh, open the floor up for some questions and discussion. Hey, Armando, how does the subsurface get such a high humidity if it drops to zero every day in the air? When you see the graphical or relative humidity in the atmosphere, you get to see that it goes wildly during a single day from maybe 60% to zero. And when you get to one meter down, you get to see that it's almost constant in time. So there's a diffusion movement of water between the of water between the atmosphere and the soil. But if you go deep enough, then it gets more independent from the atmosphere. Humidity is a function of time. Is that primarily driven by temperature? It gets cold at night and the fractional humidity goes up? Both yes and no. There is some, I mean, this is we're trying to understand the, the relationship between temperature and relative humidity. But it's not as straightforward as relative because sometimes there's a, what, what you would expect, you know, about the, 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 the known relationship between temperature and relative humidity, but sometimes it doesn't follow a, an orderly pattern. I guess that in this case, uh, maybe winds will, could be playing a, a factor, maybe the coastal fox, which in sometimes, in some cases, may get to have a little influence in the insides. So it's not easy to understand the relationship between temperature and relative humidity. We are trying to make a connection there, but sometimes it follows what would you think it should, but it sometimes it doesn't make any sense at all. I was just curious about what the prevalent metabolisms do you find in the subsurface? There is very little organic organic matter. You don't find anything, uh, but if you go to 80 and 800 centimeters, then you start finding by 0.2%. 2.6%, so it's very little organic matter. What you have in abundance is, for example, jarosite, which uh, are compounds for, you know, sulfate, uh, iron, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and others. In particular, there's one bacteria that we found that I don't recall the name now, but that, is, that bacteria is related to the iron metabolism. I mean, still, you know, exploring about who is the main, the main producer there. Uh, so I would say that the answer for sure is kind of chemolithoautrophic metabolism, which is sustaining um, the very little uh, bacteria that you have there. Uh, an example of that, uh, of, the, of the very small um, amount of life there, is that when, when, you, you, when you try to extract DNA from that, you get about, um, how, how it's about one milligram, no, one milligram, 100 nanograms of DNA per kilo of soil. So in order to get enough DNA, you have to do a lot of extractions from DNA, from a lot of sample DNA, in order to get just a, a, a couple of uh, PCR reactions, for example. So the, of course, the, the communities are there are very small, but they still have a, a, some complexity. So I was just thinking about uh, the Atacama as an, a Mars analog. And of mm -hmm. course, one of the main differences between Earth and Mars is that Earth is oxidized, the atmosphere of Earth is oxidized, whereas Mars is a fairly reduced atmosphere. How do you think that affects using the Atacama subsurface as a Mars analog, and what maybe differences would you expect based on your research? That's a very good question, and we have thought about that, but we haven't done the crucial experiment, which is to determine the amount of oxygen in the soil. Because in the soils here, if you dig a hole, you get to see that it's very compacted. So at first, it seems it is a, an oxygen environment, but I have to prove that. 
to come uh, ask me that question in my, uh, about six months and more, and I will tell you the answer. All right. Well, good luck with that. I'm looking forward to those results. Armando, there's a question coming from the Sagan network. Um, okay. What kind of cell density are we talking about in the subsurface? Oof. Let me remember the values. Uh, I mean, this in the surface or in the, in, in the depths? At depth. At depth. Okay. Um, that surface is zero, presumably. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's zero. It's close to zero. It's close to zero. Um, but it's not a, it's not an extinct. It's, it's incredible that you can still find uh, some microbes. But in that case, we think that are coming from the environment. You know, maybe being deposited there for time time and then gone. Uh, in the body, uh, we haven't calculated really. I cannot say at this point how low it is. So, given your intuition in working in the Atacama, what are your thoughts about life on Mars? <laughs> That's a question that I have been repeatedly asked. I mean, there is a, an emotional part of me <laughs> that says you can find life in this place where there seems nothing that can support life, and you have the, about the same case in Mars. That emotional part from me says that it should be possible. We do know that Mars was much wetter in the past. We, didn't, we do know that that happened in a moment in time where life was originated on Earth. And we do know that life has been able to survive here. So by analogy, if life originated on Mars in similar conditions that you found on Earth, why wouldn't it be able to find it you know, hidden as it's here in the Atacama? Uh, and this is not the only case. I mean, every time you go to the Kama, I always say, every time I go to the Kama, I find not something that interesting but surprising. And again, wherever you have a little water, even a smaller amount, you will have life. So I was wondering, how long ago did it become a desert? And does the life that you find seem to be residual of maybe a more, you know, vibrant, thriving, you know, vege vegetative ecosystem, or? Are you finding that it's maybe a highly adapted desert life that just took advantage of a desert environment when other things went away? I don't know much about its uh, long-term history at all. Yeah, well, there's some disagreement on, about how long the Atacama has been a desert. The numbers that I usually give is that the Atacama has been arid for the last 150 million years. I mean, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, the Atacama was already a dry place. And the Atacama became hyper-arid about 50 million years ago. So when you try and when you characterize the type of life, it's a pretty amazing uh, history that we can tell that about the point from the point of evolution. Because, for example, in the coastal K, in the in the coastal range of the Atacama, which is just meters away from the Pacific Ocean, you find inside caves or, or below rocks a lot of microorganisms very in, in very uh, a different domain of life, cyanobacteria, microalgae, and others, which all have very close species that are from, from wet environments. For example, in a cave in the coastal range, we found uh, a dunaliella, which grows over a spider webs attached to a caves. Why, uh, why in a spider, in, on spider webs? Because you, have, you, may, you maybe have seen the spider webs very early in the morning, they're very high, hydroscopic. The, the web thread is very hydroscopic, so they catch water. And the intriguing fact that you watch that Dunaliella is a genus of 24 described species, which are all from aquatic environment, and that was the first member that was able to grow outside the water environment on a cave in the Atacama. Then we found another different cave where we found a cyanidium species, which is a very ancient group of uh, microalgae. And again, this is the second species of about 10, which is grows outside a water environment again. 
And then we found another cyanobacteria, which all closest uh, relatives are all from a marine environment. So it made you wonder why you would find life, you know, with close, which your closest family are all from aquatic environment, which are used, uh, choosing to jump out of water in the most arid desert of the world. I mean, if I were that, if if, if I were such a species, I would choose maybe to jump out of water in Hawaii or maybe in Costa Rica or something like that, but not the cause of the driest desert of the world. But I, and since we have we have been finding all these different cases, we came to the conclusion that maybe they all have the necessary tools already developed in their environment, previous environment, tolerant to salinity, tolerant to uh, high high pHs, tolerant to whatever, and, and so on and so on and so on. You have this all this like a, a molecular uh, toolkit that also allow you to colonize new environments. In this case, the Atacama. And maybe that is also happening in Hawaii, in Costa Rica. But in the case of Hawaii, Costa Rica, all the habitats are already taken. But in the case of Atacama, you have to have the proper tools in order to get and colonize that, that, that place. And that's why you can detect those species here and not, not nowhere else. And from that point of view, it's very interesting because in some way, if you go to Atacama, they say it's like going back in, in time. By the moment that on Earth, you know, life was coming out of the water, for the oceans, you know, in a start colonizing the continent. It's coming out, it's like coming back 500 million years old in, on, in time. So that's, that's the history of the, about, from the species in the coastal lake. In the case of the inside, and the high variety, for example, of the picture place that, that I'm showing here, uh, that's a different story. There, you find truly adapted uh, desert uh, microorganism, which all relative members are also from deserts. So that makes also an interesting question about where are their closest relatives, how did they get there, if they are already, they got here already adapted or they, you know, adapted in the history of the, of the, of the Atacama. But uh, my, my guess here, because we are just describing this microorganism of the hyperarctic areas, is that they are also very ancient uh, because all the other microorganisms we have found in the coastal range are ancient. So it makes sense to me that they should be ancient as well. And they could be very different uh, from the from other desert species, um, and we are already talking about that in one particular incredible strain that uh, we are mentioning how viable in time they are in this hyperarctic condition, reproducing them in the laboratory, and they and they keep their viability about about seventy percent even after four years of a complete desiccation. What I mean that about with about relative humidity about you know fifteen to twenty percent. And not only that, we have been able, in, in the last set of experiments, we are finding that in that in, the, in this particular case, which is the only way we have analyzed it today, uh, they seem to be metabolizing in the desiccated state. If you, for example, you measure ATP, which is a you know very common uh, metabolite in many involving many metabolic reactions, if you put these cells in the desiccated state after four months and you start doing things into, into this closed container with the cells, like in this case we are using a phototrophic species, it's a cyanobacteria. If you turn up light or, or, or turn it off or maybe uh, get the temperature high or get the temperature down, uh, you get to see the ATP levels fluctuate. And uh, we, weren't, <laughs> we weren't expecting that because it's supposed to be that all life when getting into the desiccated state 
you you stop all everything in neuro or you either die or you stop every metabolic reaction waiting for the for the for better condition in, in, in the future if they come so that makes sense for me it's kind of revealing that maybe they are so adapted to the to the to the to the desiccation the desiccating condition of the kama that they are learning how to function with the the smallest amount of water and what I'm expecting to show in the, in the near future, maybe with no water at all. And at least we have one metabolic reaction, one that is producing sugars, trichalose and, and sucrose, that seems to be working without water. And that would be very interesting from the point of astrobiology, because as we know, water is the one thing that is common to every life form on Earth. And this here is that you are starting to see some kind of decouplement between water and life. And that will have a huge impact on how we understand life as we know it. I think you may be exaggerating a bit with the water is one th is the one thing that's required for all life on Earth. I mean, there's other things. Uh, well, yeah, there's other things, but... But I mean, also, you're saying decoupled from water? I'm still a little bit confused. The life yeah. bugs you're finding here... They still need a little bit of water. You can't put them into a chamber and pump that humidity to zero and have them survive. Yes. We haven't gotten to a point yet where we kill the cells or stop its metabolism. Uh, we haven't yet. We haven't get to that state yet. So you can you, you start wondering, well, if they work, they must work with very little water. How you how do you measure that water in, uh, inside the cell? Maybe there is a a way to, to get water in that in those conditions which is metabolic water. You start, you know, decomposing different reactions which by byproduct produce water, that, that could be the case. But I can assure you that that amount of water inside a cell is extremely low. And and it seems that we even with that uh, they are may they may work in that that's the that's the, the, the way that you could you could think about it. But for me <laughs> I'm trying to see if I can put so much the system to the limit in order to see that even one little enzyme there, among others, that you can find there could work without water. And that, again, would be a huge discovery. Solid-state metabolism. <laughs> that would be a really huge discovery. I wish you luck on that. That's actually quite exciting. So, listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in again. Taking a break for January, resuming with regular speakers in February. So, uh, you can catch previous episodes at bmsis.org slash podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye, everyone. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.